Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. In confusing times, Tim Bale is a rare voice of clarity. He's Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London and a regular presence on radio and TV, providing insightful commentary on the latest political crises. Tim's the author of many incisive books, including The Conservative Party, From Thatcher to Cameron, and Five-Year Mission, Labour Under Ed Miliband. Tim spoke to CapEx's deputy editor, Frank Lawton, about elections, Brexit, and his latest co-authored book, Foot Soldiers, Political Party Membership in the 21st Century. Frank began by asking him why we need political parties in the first place. Well, essentially, parties are, if you like, branding devices, really. Um, It would be very difficult, I think, for uh, the average voter to make up their mind about who to vote for in an election if they were presented with hundreds and hundreds of possibilities uh, and policies without them being packaged up conveniently into more or less consistent <laughs> um, uh, chunks by political parties. And then, of course, we need them in Parliament, really, because, again, it would be very difficult to see how a government could form if you had to choose... Uh, an executive out of 650 completely free-floating independent members. Um, So they're essentially, if you like, um, as I say, information economising devices. Mm. Do you think we're going to see the rise of the independent uh, over time? We can see it maybe in in the mayoral elections, we've seen more independent MPs in, in the recent parliament, or is that just a blip? Well, I mean, I think it's actually very difficult for anyone to win a seat as an independent, Mm. partly because the rules (laughs) at elections are set by parties, so they are set to their advantages with regard to finance and data uh, and, indeed, you know, the the number of people you could get to campaign for you. Uh, Having said that, I kind of see your point because uh, fewer and fewer people uh, express any real loyalty to parties these days. So they they are potentially up for grabs uh, by people presenting themselves as some kind of, you know, fresh alternative. Mm. It's just, I think, that they, as it were, the institutional barriers to, to independent standing and winning uh, are so very high. And I think we'll probably find that, for example, in the London mayoralty election where yeah. uh, Roy Stewart, I think, you know, has a good deal of appeal. But whether he can actually leverage that into a win, 
when he's going up against you know some pretty well organised uh, outfits uh, like the Labour Party in particular, I think it's a moot point. So, so a key part of that outfit, obviously, is party members, which you've re- written a, a recent book about. Mm. Why, first of all, are parties membership organisations? Is it simply just? I mean, it's a very basic question, but it didn't always used to be that way. So it's become that way. It's become that way. I mean, politics in the nineteenth century was clearly a much more elitist affair. Um, It was the case, clearly, that candidates needed some kind of backup in their constituencies to help them get elected, Uh, but it was pretty amorphous and uh, sometimes chaotic. It was only really as politics became more democratic that it became more important to get an extra parliamentary organisation together in order to be able to elect MPs um, against other parties who were doing exactly the same. Uh, So it's really only since the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, that they became membership organisations. Since then, we haven't really found another way of doing it. Nigel Farage, interestingly, has set up the Brexit Party Mm. without members. Uh, He has only registered supporters. Uh, It will be interesting to see whether he can get them to do as much as people who you know, pay a subscription and, and feel some yeah. sense of loyalty and, and in some ways are capable of being organised, I think, because they are members. Yes. They might not even have to, looking at the way that's going Well, no, is. no, they might. And I mean, it, it is very unusual to have a party without members. I yeah. mean, there are a few if you look around Europe, but uh, very, very few. I mean, one example that springs to mind is the the Dutch uh, PVV, the Populist Radical Right Party there, which has just one member, and that's its leader, Geert Wilders. <laughs> but uh, most parties do have some kind of, uh, you know, subscripted uh, membership, although they are experimenting with registered supporters, uh, you know, to, to, to bring in people who don't quite feel they want to make the leap into membership. So I was going to say, then, so that's membership. We often hear is, uh, members of political parties sort of stereotyped to say on the right a sort of cranky old crusties or on the left are sort of you know bobble hatted uh, vegetarians what are you've obviously done a lot of work into yeah. the, the reality of party yeah. membership well what, what is that is that any resemblance to the truth there or is that just well, me being there, rude? there's a grain of truth in some of those stereotypes and certainly if you were to uh, attend the uh, annual conferences of political mm. parties you would perhaps be able to recognize the various tribes there uh you know if you didn't know you were at a lib dem conference <laughs> you could probably guess likewise you know conservatives likewise labor uh, so there, there are uh, you know there are some things about those stereotypes that are true but generally speaking i think it's um more true to say that political party members are perhaps a little bit more like each other uh, mm. than they are um you know like the rest of the population so you mean of different parties yeah, like, yes yeah, that's so. right i mean you know it, it is a very middle class occupation i mean you know, uh, around 75 to 80 percent of party members uh, are ABC One mm-hmm. voters. Uh, the Conservatives, you know, perhaps not surprisingly, have rather more uh, middle, you know, upper middle class members than, than the other parties. Uh, generally speaking, you know, the average age is is middle aged. Uh, the average age of the Conservative Party member, I think, is 57. The average age of a Labour member is 53. It is actually something that tends to attract more men than women and that's true of politics more generally although that does depend on which party you look at uh, the conservative party has a particular problem i think recruiting women at the moment um mm. you know our survey suggests that it's about 70 30 uh, male female uh, labor's much more uh, gender balanced and has become more so actually under jeremy corbyn yeah. interestingly enough 
so that there are some um, differences. But I think, you know, if you're looking at ethnicity, uh, which is you know, predominantly, you know, we're talking 95% white for mm. all the uh, major parties. Uh, if we're talking about class, uh, if we're talking about income, and even to some extent gender, you know, they're, they're fairly similar to each other. So does that matter? Well, I, I think it does matter in the sense that, you know, we're always hearing, uh, you know, not for no reason, this idea that, you know, people are feeling disconnected mm. uh, from politics. Uh, and clearly, you know, we have got a problem with participation uh, in this country uh, at elections and in other forms of politics as well. So if, if to, to use a cliche, ordinary working class people you know, who still make up, you know, 30 to 40% of the electorate don't see themselves represented at the grassroots and don't see themselves represented certainly in Parliament, Mm. then that disconnect perhaps isn't going to get any better. And in as much as one of the things that political party members do for parties is connect them, if you like, with civil society, Mm. then uh, in as much as MPs uh, and parties more generally are listening to their members, they're getting, uh, you know, a rather skewed... uh, message if you right. like about what society wants there is some there's something of another stereotype that members of parliament find their associations frustrating that the grassroots and and the national level of politics are uh, unwillingly uh, married perhaps um is do they do party membership do the members of the parties actually have a significant degree of influence in the you know the way that parties actually work well clearly it does differ between parties um most party members in most parties have an official uh, influence on policy. Mm. Uh, they get to vote at conference, uh, and this is true of the Lib Dems, of Labour, of Greens, of uh, the SNP, uh, for particular policies. Now, whether those are actually adopted into the manifestos of the parties or uh, the policies of those parties when they go into government is another matter, but at least they have an official say. In the Conservative Party, uh, members have no formal Mm. say. Having said that, um, it is, I think, almost undeniably true that if you look at the way that the Conservative Party has become converted to uh, first year of scepticism and then Brexit, I think the members of the Conservative Party did have an influence uh, on that. Um, And and the way that that happened, I think, was by their role in selecting candidates. Uh, over time, I think there was a kind of feedback process between a a parliamentary party that was becoming more Eurosceptic and a membership that was becoming more Eurosceptic. But that meant that uh, at selections, uh, the grassroots of the party were beginning to select people for their Euroscepticism. And they gradually changed the uh, the makeup of the Conservative Party at Westminster. And then I think it, it is true to say, and if you talk to MPs, you know they will say the same that you know they exerted a certain amount of informal pressure on their MPs uh, to you know uh, take a more Eurosceptic line, and then you know to to mm. vote for Brexit, and then to support Brexit once the referendum happens. So so those kinds of informal conversations that go on between members of parliament, candidates and their members at weekend events, I think, you know, they do, they do, do have matter. some result. Do you think then the Conservative Party is trying to broaden its base of its membership or that that's just not really a, a consideration at the time because there's so much well, else I mean, going on? I mean, I think for the Conservative Party, uh, the emphasis in the last couple of years has certainly been on just expanding their membership. And I'm not sure that they're too worried about the character of that membership. They just need boots on the ground. And and I think you could see 
in 2017, the Conservative Party was at a massive disadvantage when it yeah. came to the ground war compared to Labour, simply because Labour had, you know, yeah. four times as many members. Um, I think the Conservative Party ideally would like to do something about the fact that it's so gender imbalanced. I think it would like to recruit more ethnic minority people and, and probably people who are, you know, from a, a more ordinary background. Um, but... It's How? actually quite <laughs> difficult. It's, yeah. It is quite difficult for parties to target people yeah. uh, and actually to recruit people. I mean, one of the things that our research shows is that most people make the first move. They're not mm. recruited by parties as such. You know, they they are uh, triggered often by something that they see in the news. Yes. Uh, you know, to join. Uh, maybe they're sometimes recruited by friends, but actually. Being shoulder tapped by a party is extremely unusual. So all parties can do, I guess, is kind of send messages about you know their good intentions mm. and, and hope people join. But recruiting is quite difficult so, to do. So it's not seen then as a sort of dwindling membership as being a sort of existential threat to the party itself. Because obviously, if that was the case, you presume that the party would be doing more to. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting. You, you talk to some uh, MPs and some Conservative MPs and they're not worried about this at all. You know, mm. they, they think that actually kind of the, the, the party as a membership organisation is rather a sort of 20th century concept. And actually with money and with technology, the party doesn't necessarily need, you know, what I've already called boots on the ground mm. um, to, to deliver it, uh, an election win. You will, however, find some MPs who are very concerned about that situation uh, and will say, well, you know, whatever central office can do in terms of, sort of funding a national campaign, whatever we can do with social media, et cetera, et cetera, it, it doesn't actually replace the need for people to go canvassing, mm. even for people to deliver leaflets, although, of course, that can be done by paid um, delivery people. And what they will also tell you, actually, is that their relationship with their their local party does actually give them an in into the community, yeah. uh, which they you know they put quite a lot of value on. Is there any th- is there any sense of, sort of greater community amongst the Labour Party Labour Party members? Because although the Labour Party has grown into a mass membership movement, it seems in a way that no other party has been able to do in this country. For yes, a long time. I mean I think I think we have to be aware. Of, that we don't uh, equate members with activists. Mm. Um, you know, you can have a lot of members, but it doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> that they're all actually doing anything for the party or even coming to meetings yes. and, uh, and meeting each other. Uh, but of course, as you say, I mean, the sheer weight of numbers in the Labour Party means that even if, as it were, the, the activism rate were the same uh, between the Conservatives and Labour, you would still have more you know, bodies prepared to meet each other, talk, yep. you know, socialise uh, and go out doing work for the party and the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. Actually, uh, it does appear to be the case that Labour Party members and indeed Lib Dem members and indeed SNP members are more active than Conservative Party members. We're not quite sure why that is, but that may actually have something to do simply with critical mass because one of the things that our research does uncover is that for people to be active, particularly offline, if you like, to do the kind of meetings, to, to go delivering, to canvas. They need to feel embedded in a local organisation and need to feel, as it were, that, that they're part of a social yes. network. Um, and, and I'm afraid if you have a very, very small party, that's much more difficult to create that mm. kind of atmosphere. So you can get this kind of vicious cycle. And I, I suspect the Conservative Party has been in that vicious cycle where you know fewer and fewer members means even those members you've got 
uh, you know, tend to, you know, feel less connected and therefore mm. tend to do less and therefore they feel less connected. They tend to do less, fewer people join. How has that changed over time? As in what, the, what the party offers the, the membership? How has that sort of developed? Well, uh, that, that is a really interesting question because, of course, the uh, parties other than the Conservative Party have, like many parties in the rest of Europe, democratised themselves. Mm. Um, so that you know they've given their members more and more of a say in uh, in uh, influencing policy, in selecting the leader, etc., etc. Now the Conservative Party has gone some of the way yeah. because, of course, after William Hague's reforms, uh, Conservative Party members now have a say in electing the the leader, uh, which they certainly didn't before. And I think that is an important motivation mm. uh, for joining. I mean, we can certainly see in the the numbers that have joined the Conservative Party in anticipation of the leadership election, uh, during the leadership election, and then just after the leadership election, you know, being able to, you know, vote for the leader, yes. and in their case, the prime minister, was a, was a big draw. So, I mean, I think, I think parties have responded in some ways to the need to give members incentives. Is, is there a worry, though, with the idea of having a sort of democratisation of the party and, and having the members involved in policy, that policy can sort of be captured by special interest groups or by sort of the very odd committed people that, that are members in the first <laughs> yes. place? Yes, I mean, I, I think... The case there, against democracy, yeah, essentially. Yeah, there, there is a definite tension there, absolutely. Um, uh, and I think if you talk to MPs or, or people who work, you know, in party HQ, they are... Uh, you know, they are very aware that members, although they see them mainly as assets, can be liabilities, Mm. Um, partly because obviously they can push the party into policy positions that aren't popular with voters. Um, But also, actually, in the era of social media, they can embarrass the parties in ways that probably, you know, weren't possible (laughs) in, in, you know, pre-internet times when, you know, somebody said something embarrassing, it was in a drafty church hall, uh, and it never got out there. But now, of course, uh, we've seen this, obviously, with, with Labour and anti-Semitism yes. in particular. I mean, it's possible to you know, dig up things that, that Labour members have said and whether or not they kind of represent you know, the views of the party. They are represented as such by the media and it's very difficult for the party to deny them. Yeah. Well, speaking about uh, the Labour membership, I mean, we've already spoken about the way in which the Labour Party has become a, a mass movement under Jeremy Corbyn. The figure, as far as I understand, the membership has been declining in recent mm. years, but it's still obviously vast compared to... Yeah, it's, about, it's, it's, a, it's certainly above 400,000, yeah. I think, still. Yeah. Uh, do you think that the Labour Party is going to be able to sustain that mass membership movement after Corbyn? Do you have other structures in place to sort of keep that going? Or is it just it's something that's very much rooted in Jeremy Corbyn's own sort of personal appeal if... Well, our research does suggest that Jeremy Corbyn was a big, big draw for people. I mean, Mm. there's no doubt that uh, both, you know, the possibility of him becoming party leader and then him becoming party leader and needing to be protected against his MPs, as it were, um, drew a lot of people into the party, partly because of what he represents. I mean, he incarnates in some ways the kind of authentic socialism that so many Labour Party members have been longing for yes. uh, and had always been attracted to actually before he was was party leader uh, so if he were to go certainly if he were to go you know not of his own accord I think that would be a problem if he were to step down and somehow engineer a transition to another figure who ca- could you know, not perhaps quite as effectively as he can, but you know, embody or incarnate mm. that, those kind of socialist values. Then, uh, I think you know there would still be uh, 
a fair few people who would remain in the Labour Party who, and who might join it. Because when we look at why people join, it is, generally speaking, an ideological decision. You yes. know, it's because they are attracted to the principles of that party and or they are very keen to <laughs> oppose the principles yes. espoused by other parties. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. So we've talked about the way in which one of the major parties has moved towards a, a mass membership socialist institution. We've talked about the way in which the other major parties sort of shrunk to a, a sort of vote-leave organisation. Does that leave space in the somewhere in the middle for another type of membership organisation, another party. I suppose it's, it's been bandied around for a long time now and hasn't come to pass, and our electoral mm. system makes it difficult. Mm. But in the numbers that you've crunched, is there space for something else? Well, I mean, I, I think we talked earlier about parties being brands. I think it's very difficult to establish a new brand in this market, to be mm. honest. It is quite a crowded market. And you already see... Yeah, independent or, group for change. Yeah, I mean, well, exactly. <laughs> you already see quite how difficult, I believe it was Change UK, was I? Yeah. I can't remember. Yeah, they've gone through various name changes. Yeah. Um, you already see, you know, quite how difficult it can mm. be. Now, of course, they made all sorts of mistakes, but I, I think that is an object lesson on, on how difficult it is. Now, you know, there is space in the middle, but that at the moment is being taken up by the Liberal Democrats. And, and to be honest, you know, they have actually had pretty phenomenal growth. I mean, they are mm. now on about 125,000 party members. Now, given they've only got, what, 12 MPs mm. versus the hundreds that uh, the, the other parties, the, the Lib Dems, uh, sorry, the, uh, the Labour Party and uh, the Conservatives have, that's actually a pretty impressive ratio, yes. uh, if you like. So there are a lot of people who kind of look for that alternative. And of course, the SNP have over 100,000 members as well. So, yes. you know, that, that again is very impressive in a country that's, you know, only made up of what, 5 million people. Yes. Do you think that's going to be one of the drivers of, of however the Liberal Democrats do in this election has perhaps gone a little bit under the radar so far? Well, the Liberal Democrats are known as incredibly good on the ground campaigners. Uh, And, you know, some of the research we did at the 2015 and 2017 election asked people how much time they spent campaigning, 
uh, and asked people what they did for their parties. And uh, lo and behold, the Liberal Democrats come out as the kings of the letterbox. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, the SNP come out, you know, I suppose. Fighting. Yeah, <laughs> well, come out. Interestingly, you know, this, this whole talk about cybernats, they are the most active online they, right? uh, as well. Yep. So um, some of those stereotypes do, do hold. <laughs> so uh, I, I think you're absolutely right to say that, um, you know, the Conservatives are facing a bit of a problem at mm. this election, certainly if 2015 and 2017 is anything to go by, because they do less for their party at election time. Uh, they do less of the high-intensity stuff, so knocking on doors and delivering leaflets. And they are also, also noticeably less inclined to do stuff online mm. uh, for their party, uh, which in today's you know, campaign world, although we talk about you know, the, the, the ground war being sort of on, fought on the streets, it's also fought yeah. online as yeah. well. Um, you know, that, that's quite important. Now, we don't know why that is. It could be a function of age, because while I say that the average age of the Conservative Party member being 57 is only sort of four or five years older than the average Labour member. Actually, that still means that four out of 10 Tory members, when we surveyed them, are over 65. Now, of course, everyone's got a grandmother or a mother or father who's on Facebook all the time and, and that kind of thing. But I'm not sure... It's not a native uh, reaction. No, it's it? not a native reaction. And I'm not sure that that's what, you know, grandmas and granddads use Facebook for. No, it's uh, fighting election campaigns. That's <laughs> right, yeah. I think, I think they, they use it to keep in touch with their, their reluctant grandchildren yes, or children. their reluctant yeah. association. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, well, we're, speak, we're speaking about uh, membership, just to broaden it out perhaps a, a little from that. But um, do you think that we're seeing perhaps a worrying change in the way in which party members and the general public more broadly, view the role of their MP, view the role of their politicians, a move from the idea of them being representatives to delegates. Is that something that that you came across when talking to members? Well, it's interesting. I think members are actually reasonably satisfied with the kind of power balance um, between, uh, as it were, the party leadership uh, and themselves. Although it it is true to say that they would still, generally speaking, like more uh, influence (laughs) than they they have, absolutely. Um, We didn't get into the specific question of whether... um, MPs should actually be doing their bidding mm. or doing the electorate's bidding. But I do think you've put your finger on a, on a real issue there. Um, there is, I think, a fundamental misunderstanding, both among party members and voters, about just what you say. I mean, I, I think most MPs, quite understandably, take that kind of Burkean view that they're there as representatives and they owe their electors and indeed their party members their judgment, yes. uh, whereas a lot of voters uh, or non-voters uh, and, and party members actually do think that you know they should be doing their bidding, really. Do you think that we, I mean, obviously you're a, you're a professor, you're a teacher, do you, yeah. you think that there's a sort of glaring gap in the education system when it comes to how our institutions work? I've been banging on about this for ages. Yeah, I mean, to to be honest, I think there is. I think there is a a kind of reluctance and a nervousness um, to talk about politics in schools. Primarily, I think, because teachers are very afraid of being seen to kind of brainwash um, Mm. students. And it clearly is quite difficult, you know, um, particularly at primary, but also even at secondary school, to talk about politics without one's own 
you know, ideas um, bleeding into mm. the conversation. But I think, you know, that has the unfortunate effect of not giving people a fairly basic understanding of how our political system mm. works. Just the mechanisms. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, it's, it's very often sort of shoved into, you know, a bit of sort of civics education in yeah. PHSE. You know, it's not really adequate, I mm. think. Um, but you could say the same thing about so many things. I mean, personal finance is another, sure. <laughs> is another matter. So, you know, I, 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 I do... I do obviously shy away from the idea that everything in education ought to be practical. Um, however, having said that, I mean, we, I'm not sure we do really educate people to become, you know, fully uh, functioning adults, yeah. if you see what I mean, uh, politically or, or in so many other ways. And, and do you think we, we train candidates to become fully functioning MPs properly? Whose responsibility is it to teach a person how to be an MP? Is that the party's responsibility? And if it is, are they doing a good enough job? Well, that's a really um, good point because there uh, have been attempts on the part of Parliament um, to do more induction Mm. exercises for MPs. Uh, There have been attempts by outside organisations to draw up a kind of job description of an MP, but actually most of them just do learn on the job and learn from each other. Now, whether it's actually possible um, to, to, you know, have some kind of handbook which would help them... I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to learn a, a piece of software. Uh, <laughs> struggle to turn a computer on. So. Yeah, well, but I mean, very often, you know, you, you've got this, you've got this kind of guide stuff. But yeah. in, until you actually start trying to do something, sure. uh, you know, to kind of do a spreadsheet, yeah. you know, to make something happen, it, it goes in one ear and out the other. Right. So I'm just not sure whether that would work or not. Now, you're a historian of the Conservative Party, or mm. have been. You've written uh, the Conservative Party from Thatcher to David Cameron. Um, what's your personal opinion of where the party's at now well uh i mean i think the party uh, has changed markedly uh ideologically but in in a rather confusing way um because it clearly has adopted this very populist very kind of nationalistic mm. uh stance on europe and that bleeds into all sorts of other things and yet it's moved away um partly because it wants to capture voters who also um, share those uh, values from its, you know, more kind of free market uh, ideals. I mean, certainly if you look at the way it's going into the election campaign, we're promising to spend money on virtually everything. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not the Conservative Party that, you know, Mrs. Thatcher, for example, would would have recognised. Now, whether that is, you know, an inconsistency, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, there are many parties uh, all over Europe who are, you know, small C conservative on social issues, uh, are pretty nationalistic, but are also very pro, you know, the, the welfare state uh, and, and public spending. So while we might see it as an inconsistent mix, I'm not sure it is as inconsistent as we see it. And I'm not sure it's as unconservative, perhaps, as, as we see it. I mean, you know, you could even take it back to the kind of conservatism that you saw in the 1950s and say, well, you know, it's not so very different from that, mm. actually. So you think that's the trajectory then? Well, it's interesting. I mean, it depends on whether you think um, the desire to splash the cash uh, is a kind of temporary uh, <laughs> um, fix for an election that needs to be won on Brexit yeah. and that once that election is won, if it's won... Uh, the Conservative Party will carry on with that or whether it will pivot back to uh, the kind of, you know, austerity conservatism or, you know, uh, to 
positively label it, free market conservatism mm. that we've seen previously. I, and I'm not sure. If you look at the history of the Conservative Party, I think you'd probably put money on a kind of oscillation or a pivot. I mm. mean, the Conservative Party it has never, it seems to me, you know, followed one particular line uh, from A to B. You know, there's a, there's a kind of iterative um, process, a sort of uh, dialectic, if you like, that goes on. And so you think there is hope then of a form of reconciliation for the sort of old Tory, perhaps liberal wing of the party that has perhaps been under a bit of pressure? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think so. I think one of, one of the issues, however, is the fact that, you know, people have been kicked out of the party, mm. uh, you know, particularly quite high-profile people. Uh, and... You know, given what I've said before about selection being quite important, obviously if you change the complexion of the parliamentary party uh, and you remove some people who are a voice, if you like, for a different kind of conservatism, then it's more difficult for that kind of conservatism to, to break back into the party and mm. to influence it. So two final questions that, that I'm asking everybody uh, that comes on the podcast at the moment. One, are you optimistic about the state of things? <laughs> Um, I'm rather depressed about the way that the election has been conducted, and we're only a few days into it. Um, oh, plenty of time for it to get better. Yeah, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, things don't get better over the course of an election. They just get worse until polling day. So I'm, I'm a little bit worried about, you know, um, you know the very polarised situation that we're seeing. I'm a bit worried about the kind of fake news, to be honest, that's, mm. you know, already come out, uh, and about the very kind of personalised stuff that, that goes on. Although, you know, we need to be careful, don't we? I mean, you know, you can sort of look back at previous elections and think they're yes, some sort of golden yes, age. Rosy, rosy affairs, <laughs> right? Exactly. So, um, you know, I've, I've got my doubts, but, you know, as someone, as you say, who's kind of looked back at the history, I, I wouldn't want to say that, you know, um, it's so much worse now than it has been before. And having looked back at the history, what's your prediction? Uh, <laughs> With all the caveats that we've all Well, uh, if you look at the fundamentals... Uh, they look pretty good for the Conservative Party. I mean, there are a lot of people who, rightly or wrongly, want Brexit done. Boris Johnson is a long way ahead of Jeremy Corbyn on all sorts of leadership characteristics that tend to drive people's vote, and the Conservatives are ahead on economic competence. Um, So those fundamentals are set fairly fair, I think, for a Conservative majority. However, we are in a slightly more Europeanised party system with three, four parties who could win seats in different parts of the country, which makes things much more complicated and we have a much more uh, volatile electorate that has far fewer party loyalties and is willing to switch and willing to switch much later in an election. So it makes it much more difficult to predict. But I suppose, uh, I sometimes think that we've been so burned by the 2017 election result that we assume that, you know, because Labour managed to close the gap um, so effectively last time around. Inevitably, that will occur this time around. I, I, I'm not so sure, but, you know, let's see. Let's see indeed. Professor Tim Bale, thank you. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.